Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not. Here we go. Welcome back, one and all, to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. We're going to get into some opinion scholarship today, getting back into uh, the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers. Um, this is going to be part two. We're going to finish up um, uh, the series that we're doing on Edinger's, um, uh, what is it called, um, Ar- Archetypes and Antiquity. <clears throat> If you remember, uh, we, on the first episode, we basically covered 100 years of development in Greek philosophy, uh, from Thales all the way to Parmenides. If you guys remember, it was about 585 B.C. through 475 B.C., so just a hair over 100 years we covered in the first episode. And we called that episode uh, Seeking the Arche, because all of these ancient Greek philosophers, um, metaphysicians really, were... We're trying to pose um, ideas, theories for the origin of um, reality, the origin of the cosmos, um, and um, telling kind of mythological stories about it, but in a philosophical way, in a, in a different way than we had seen people do up to this point. Um, it's not entirely non-religious, which is interesting, and I find it particularly interesting, honestly. We focus on people like Pythagoras and Parmenides uh, in that first episode, which those those characters were like sages. They were like um, shamans. They were like ancient shamans, but, you know, for the beginning of the kind of Western tradition. And I just don't didn't ordinarily think about um, Western civilization having those same sorts of common origins that you see in... Um, primitive cultures all over the world. I don't know why. It's obvious that that must be the case, but it just never really occurred to me. I always thought that Greek philosophy was um, something Aristotelian, something, you know, on the footsteps of science, uh, something that um, that was counter to the religious sentiments that um, these sorts of thinkers have had up to this point. So it's kind of eye-opening. So if you remember, we talked about um, Thales before. Thales believed that water was the arche, the thing that was the first substance, the thing from which all of reality came. Uh, it must have started with water. This is what Thales told us. Um, Anaximander, his student, told us that whatever the arche was, you know, maybe he couldn't say, but it was boundless. Whatever the arche was must be boundless because it's responsible for you know, an infinite variety of realities, you know, an, infin- an infinite variety of um, individual existing things. So it must be boundless, the source of them. And Eximenes said it was air. 
And if you remember, the, the idea here is the breath soul. It's like when you die, you breathe your last breath, or your life leaves with your breath. And, and ancient people thought, okay, air, breath, there must be something connected to spirit and life there. And so Anaximenes believed maybe air was the arche. And then we start getting kind of more mystical when we look at Pythagoras, who comes up next, and he talks about number, arithmos being the arche. Something like information, really, is what he was getting at. Then Heraclitus steps in, and he starts talking about the arche being this ever-living fire, this eternal fire. Um, fire, you know, being a symbol of um, energy, heat, and motion, and things like that. You watch a fire, you see exactly what I'm describing. You see heat, you see light, you see motion, transformation, um, you know, and this symbol, there's something, you know, deeply fundamental uh, about it that we see reflected in the world. Everything's constantly moving and transforming. The you know planets are spinning and the the uh, galaxies are are spinning and so forth. So, um, and it's to say nothing of our own motion. And then Parmenides gets maybe the most uh, mystical of all, and he starts talking about something really much more abstract. He starts talking about being as the arche. You know, it's like I'm a human being, so I'm a certain type of reality. And then you can talk about being in general, like reality itself. So it's like I'm a being within being, and there's all different kinds of being, and everything kind of rolls up to this idea of being. It's hard to put your finger on exactly what that is, but to Parmenides, that was the arche. What we're going to do today is pick up where we left off with Parmenides. So we're going to start around 460 B.C. today. We're going to go all the way up to 265. So we're going to cover double the amount of, of time we covered in the first one, 200 years. Um, in this case, we're going to start with Anaxagoras. We're going to hear from uh, Empedocles, uh, the great um, Plato and Aristotle. And then we're also going to hear from Zeno, and that's going to round it out for today. Uh, and it's going to round it out for the pre-Socratics. Um, I've got one other book that I want to talk about in terms of the pre-Socratics that will be coming up in the future. Um, it's called Parmenides and Empedocles, and it's basically just a translation of their actual fr fragments of their work that survive. So rather than talking from the words of somebody else, I want to talk from the words of the philosophers themselves. So we'll get to that uh, pretty, pretty shortly. Without further ado, I bring you Psyche and Antiquity Part 2. We're going to start with Anaxagoras. Now remember, these philosophers are seeking the arche. They're trying to figure out what it is that's the origin of reality, of being, of uh, experience. What is the thing from which all things emerged? Uh, we, th we like to think about that from a religious perspective as God. And I like that idea. But these early, these early philosophers had a different idea of what gods were. So they're going to take a different tact. Um, and Exagoras, where we're going to start, he lived about 460 BC. Interesting fact about him, he was ex exiled, you know, he was kicked out of his community. Um, when he was an elderly man, like at the end of his life, they're like, you, you can't stay here, you got to go. Why? Because he, he was teaching that the sun is a red hot stone. He was teaching people that the sun is a red hot stone. Now, he had no reason to, um, no proof of that. Um, it happens to be a pretty spot-on uh, guess, right? But um, this is what he was teaching. It was blasphemous at the time, you know, so they, they, they told him he couldn't stay. And it reminds you a lot of what happened with Socrates. You know, he was, he was accused of, um, um, 
well, I can't remember what, the, tainting the youth or whatever. I can't remember what word that they used to describe it. But he was putting thoughts in the head of the heads of the young people that were, um, you know, uh, destabilizing to the society. And uh, so Socrates had to go. So something similar with um, Anaxagoras, and we're going to see with Empedocles something similar. So it's like, you know, these great thinkers um, were often punished for it. And uh, I, mean, I think that's as true today as it was in ancient Greece. Isn't that interesting? All right. Anaxagoras' great contribution um, is the idea of noose or mind. We, we did hear this before on several occasions, but when we talked about Plato, um, we encountered this idea of noose. Um, and it means mind or consciousness, something like that. So Anaxagoras was the first philosopher to, to, to bring this idea of noose or mind as the arche. And he, this is what he said. He said, Noose is infinite and mixed with nothing. It is itself by itself. Noose has power over all things that have life and over revolution so that it began to revolve in the beginning. This revolution caused the separating off, the rare from the dense, the warm from the cold, the light from the dark, and the dry from the moist. All right, so... So this is interesting. Mind is this principle of motion. And I, I, I thought this was interesting. I kind of struggled with this for a, for a little while when I first heard it, but it, it's, it, I figured out how to make sense of it. And I'll share it with you, but um, noose is infinite and mixed with nothing. So whatever it was that there at the beginning, the first thing, the thing responsible for all of reality, for Anaxagoras, it's something like mind, like disembodied, pre-existing, you know, eternal mind. You know, you can kind of think about like if outer space was empty of things, if it was just an infinite expanse of space, whatever that means, that's hard to even say. Um, imagine that space, infinite black. It's like Anaxagoras thinks this is mind. It's like the, the, the place where things can come to exist and the force that makes those things actualized, that embodies them, that makes them real material things. All of that is noose. All of this is mind. Mind by itself. Mind at large. The mind of a god. However you want to imagine that. Then he says, noose has power over all things that have life. And it has power over revolution. Noose is the thing responsible for motion. And he talks about revolution, of course, because we see that all around us. We see that, like that's the cosmic motion. Uh, satellites revolve around planets. Planets revolve around stars. You know, stars revolve around uh, the center of the galaxy. Galaxies revolve around each other. So this principle of motion uh, is talked about as revolution. And noose brings this about. And when it does, the motion separates things from themselves. So the idea you have is that in the beginning, all things are together. All things are mind all things are noose. And noose begins to move. And as it moves, it starts to separate itself. It separates the unity of itself into many different things. And the example that was given in the, uh, in the book is something like, um, now I'm going to forget the fucking name of it, um, centrifuge. So, you know, in, in science where they, uh, they want to separate materials, they, they put them in a machine that spins them really, really fast, right? And, they, and it separates them separates the dense things from the lighter things or what have you. This is kind of the analogy you can put in your mind. Anaxagoras believes that mind is this principle of motion. 
and that it that motion is like a centrifuge that you know doing what mind does this this revolution um it it fragments the the original unity the ouroboros whatever you know whatever was there in the beginning it fragments itself off into into separate things and so this is the image of creation the one thing being being separating itself into all these other things and it reminds you of these religious stories we talked about before about the primordial god being um, dismembered and its body becoming the cosmos you know it's like originally the god was a single thing and its hair becomes the mountains, its bones become the, you know, what valleys, whatever. So it's like these stories are, are about the body of the primordial God be, being separated off and becoming the cosmos. And this is what you have a kind of a version of here, kind of a philosophic version of. So mind is seen as the animating principle of the world. And it, its activity, which he's calling revolution, causes the separation of itself into opposites, into being, into reality. You know, it's impossible to imagine something existing that is all things together. Like We don't really have any way of understanding what that might be, this idea of the Ouroboros. But the moment things start getting separated off and becoming you know, finite, individual, limited things, then we're like, oh, okay, I, I can see what that is. So you see how that... That separation takes something infinite, something whose meaning is doesn't end, right? You can't never wrap your brain around what the meaning is behind an infinite thing. But as soon as as soon as it separates itself off into finite things, then they become knowable, and so then you have the birth of reality. You have the birth of experience, and that's what we call reality as conscious creatures. All right. He goes on about Anaxagoras. Now remember, this is Ed Edinger. This is the, the Jungian uh, psychologist talking about these philosophers. And Edinger says, the world was created when Noose started a motion. As a consequence, things got differentiated from each other. And Anaxagoras summarizes this idea like this. He says, all things were together. Then mind came and arranged them. So it's it's see this is an interesting sort of paradox because all things were together. It's not explicit about what those things are because all we know exists at you know at this point in the story is mind. So all things were together in mind. And then mind came to arrange them. You see how you get this paradoxical thing. It's like subject and object um no are no longer separated like they're supposed to be. If all things were together in mind and then mind came to arrange them, that mind was already there. So you see how subject and object gets all fumbled. And this happens with mystical thinking. This happens when you, when you hear you know, religious people talking about their religious experiences or mystics talking about their mystical experiences um, or you know, physicists talking about quantum mechanics. You know, paradoxes abound. I think that's important. I think that's necessary and unavoidable. It's a sign that we're talking about something paramount, something of fundamental importance. He says, as far back as Homer, Nous was attributed both to humanity and to Zeus. So in book 16 of, uh, of uh, the, uh, I don't know if it's the Iliad or the Odyssey, I think the Odyssey. Anyway, it says, the noose of Zeus is even stronger than that of men. 
So, again, going back into you know, very ancient Greece, back to the time of Homer, you have this idea of noose, of mind, being attributed to man, but also to the gods. Not not just to the gods, but to Zeus, the high god. So there's something that connects mortal man, or the material world, with the divine. And that thing that connects us is our mind, is noose. And this is an idea that's going to become something like spirit, or soul, and then we, as modern-day Christians or, or you know, Jews or Muslims, what, what have you, or even Hindus, we, we can see that soul idea connecting man and, and God. That makes a lot more sense to a kind of modern person. We're using different language, though, here. And this is the point, the evolution of this idea um, of the Arche. And we've got to mind here as the Arche. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just wrap up Anaxagoras with this bit. Where Edinger says, Anaxagoras bequeathed us the image of the divine transpersonal noose, which creates all things through the process of separatio. It is like a vast cosmic centrifuging process. So you see, that's where I was getting to. So this idea of separatio, he, he brings up before um, from a psychological sort of perspective. And the idea of separatio is, um, if, you know, when we're thinking about psychology is the ego thing we identify with the thing that we call our self that we sort of develop in infancy and continue to develop throughout our lives and we attach ourselves to this idea of an ego it, it doesn't always exist it came from somewhere it has to emerge in the process of development now the place where the ego emerges is from the unconscious this unconscious background is very similar to this idea of a noose, this unconscious background of mind or mental stuff that we exist within and perhaps are composed of. Um, and so the ego has to be separated from the unconscious. And in this case, the material cosmos has to be separated from noose or mind. So there's a mirror going on here, the separation of ego from the unconscious um, and this is where I want to talk about this idea of motion a little bit. So Anaxagoras talks about uh, noose or mind being in motion, and the motion causing the separation that we call creation, creation of the cosmos. If mind is all that exists, the question is, what is motion? What does it mean in that context? It's hard to imagine motion without objects to move, isn't it? But mind does sort of have objects. We call those thoughts, feelings, you know. It does sort of have objects. And let's think about thoughts for a second, because thoughts are the contents of mind. You ever close your eyes to go to sleep at night and you're uh, stressed out about something or whatever, you're preoccupied, and your mind just going, it's going a thousand miles an hour. Even that way of putting it, your mind is going a thousand miles an hour. It's moving, isn't it? Thoughts, they're coming, they're flickering in and out of your mind. They're you know, leaping on from one thought to the next, to the next, to the next. And try as you might, it's very difficult to slow that process down or to stop it so that you can fall asleep. You ever have that problem? Your thoughts are moving a thousand miles an hour. Thoughts emerge, they move, they come, they go, they transform. All of that is motion, action. And yet there's nothing there to be acted on, nothing to move. It's all mental. So this idea of 
motion, this revolution that, that uh, uh, we're talking about here. I think it's something, it's to be understood something like that. It, motion in the way that thoughts move, in the way that objects, not yet material, still have existence and still have, you know, motion. And that brings us to Empedocles. Empedocles lived about 450 BC. Uh, he's one of these mysterious figures uh, like Pythagoras and Parmenides. Um, he's described as being a combination of features, like a, a rational philosopher, like what philosophers will become in the, you know, in the future after Empedocles, with a legendary shaman. He's a philosopher shaman. And I love that idea. It says, like Pythagoras, he was influenced by Orphism. If you guys remember, Orphism is this ancient mystery religion in ancient Greece. Um, Plato speaks sort of highly of, and a lot of other philosophers do. And we don't know much about Orphism because it was a mystery religion. It was something that was kept secret. It was something that wasn't spoken about. And so we don't have much to go on about Orphism and what it meant. We have some legends that surround it, some stories and, and so forth. Um, and we'll talk about some of that here. But Empedocles was definitely influenced by Orphism. And then what you might remember about Empedocles, if anything, is that legend tells us that he decided to turn himself into an immortal by leaping into the volcano of Etna, which is how he ended his life. Jumps voluntarily into the lava. Right? This, is, this is what happened to Empedocles. Um, so there's some talk still about whether that was a voluntary thing or whether that was the way Empedocles had to go. Because like, like these philosophers, you know, um, shaking things up socially, at some point the government, people in power are like, this guy's got to go. He's got to go. And that happened to a lot of these philosophers, including Socrates, famously. All right, there's a guy named Edward Zeller that gets brought up. Um, uh, Edinger references a bunch. He's a historian of Greek philosophy. And he wrote about Empedocles this. He said, Many superhuman feats were ascribed to him. He believed himself to have reached the last state from which there is a return to the realm of the gods. Thousands followed him when he passed through a city and prayed to him. Perhaps following a precedent of the Pythagoreans, he first communicated his doctrines only under a vow of secrecy. Later, he expounded them in two poems. We actually have bits and pieces of these two poems. So here's what I want to point out about Empedocles. We know he's this mysterious shaman-like figure, but, he, but check this shit out. He believed himself to have reached the highest and last stage of reincarnation. And we're going to talk about reincarnation more as we go along. The ancient Greeks had this belief, which was also kind of a stunning revelation to me. I, I thought that was an Eastern idea. Um, he believed he had, he had reached the end of this process. He was this enlightened being, something like a Buddha, right? And he goes from town to town, city to city, preaching, right? He's, he's evangelizing to some degree. He's, he's talking about his philosophy publicly. But the image I have is the image of Jesus going from city to city, preaching, you know, his, his gospel. And all these followers followed him around from city to city. Like he had throngs of people following him, just like Jesus did. And they prayed to him. That's strange. Like they saw him as a divine or semi-divine being. 
And this was all kept very hush-hush. This was all very, you know, what he taught was secret. It wasn't to be communicated outside of the group. It was like the Orphism mystery religions with this vow of secrecy. And this isn't uncommon. You see this everywhere. The mystery schools are one example. It's like a secret society type deal. You know, you, you don't speak about what happens there. You have to be invited in. It's all kept secret behind closed doors. And it's, it's on purpose because, because the knowledge or the wisdom that's being imparted in these rituals, in these mystery schools, it's powerful and dangerous. It's something that only the, um, the people that are prepared for it, who've earned it, can can be bestowed the knowledge. You couldn't trust it with someone who couldn't understand it. You couldn't trust that knowledge with someone who wants to use it for ill. So you have to keep, if this is so powerful, you have to keep the lid on it to some degree. And this predates, you know, even the mystery schools. I mean, Aesop's fables are very ancient, you know? And what are they? They're stories, right? But they're masked, right? It's like stories with a persona slapped on. It's like an animal farm, if you remember that book. All of these stories are little short stories, and most of them have to do with animals and, and gods. And they're telling important um, lessons. Um, some of them are religious and mystical. Some of them are critical of power. And they hide the meaning in these stories where the characters are animals and they're kept relatively short so they're hard to read into. Um, and Jesus did the same thing with his parables. He told stories that weren't cut and dry, that weren't putting their meaning on the surface for the same reason the mystery schools did, to keep this information to only the worthy people. Because it's too dangerous to give this information to just anybody. But eventually, Empedocles does write these poems, and it and it it's something like a parable, but it's not kept a secret, right, as it had been in the past. It's something being offered and available um, to the public. The poems was called uh, "On Nature" or "Physis" and "Purifications," which in Greek is "Catharsis." Um, "On Nature" describes a cyclical history of the universe. So it's not like the universe has a beginning and an end. It's something more like uh, a Hindu or a Buddhist notion that the universe is eternal. It goes through cycles. You know, once one cycle ends, the next cycle begins, and on and on it goes. Right? There isn't an end to it. It's a cyclical universe. It's an eternal. The universe is an eternal being, and everything is compounded from four elements. So Empedocles gives us four elements as the arche. In addition to the four elements, he says that there are two primary moving factors, love, philia, and strife, nikos. Love and strife. So everything's made of these four elements and moved by the push and pull of these two opposing forces, love and strife, light and dark, that kind of thing. These elements periodically unite into a divine and homogeneous sphere, right? So love pulls the everything together, strife rips everything apart again. But every now and then, things roll back into their original unity. The Ouroboros is restored. Everything comes together. And this is described as a divine homogeneous sphere. This is the singularity of the, of the physicists. They're at the Big Bang at the beginning. The divine homogeneous sphere. 
He says the sphere then dissolves, and by this the world is established. So you have something, again, like that centrifuge idea. Everything is a one in the beginning. And it's not motion, in this case, that pulls it apart, but strife. Strife pulls it apart, dissolves that unity, separates that unity, and thus the world is established. It's exactly the same idea where we started with a little bit of a twist on it. And then the cycle reverses, and the universe gradually returns to a state of the sphere. It returns to the singularity. Right? And we, we think about this exactly this way in modern physics. The cosmos began with a singularity. And when a star dies, as an example, it ends in a singularity, in this black hole. Uh, the place of origin and the place of termination are exactly the same point. And that's how you get this cycle, right? The beginning is the end. The alpha is the omega. And this cosmic cycle rolls on without beginning or end. And I want to say that there is a modern idea in physics, in cosmology, that sounds exactly like this. We've all heard of the Big Bang, you know, the universe gets created from this original singularity, whatever that might mean. We don't know. Um, and then it expands. The world, ex the cosmos expands and expands. And scientists argue, does that go on forever? Because if it does, that's going to lead to something they call the heat death of the universe. That sounds pretty fucking scary. But maybe not. Maybe it reaches some apex, and then it starts pulling back to itself. And you have... A return to the Big Bang. So you have what they call the Big Bounce, right? The Big Bang starts, it reaches some critical point, pulls itself back together, back to the singularity, boom, Big Bang again. Expansion, critical point, back into itself, Big Bang again. And you have this sort of, you have this inhale and exhale of the, of the cosmos. You have the Big Bounce, as they call it. And here you have this modern idea sitting firmly in ancient Greece. It's amazing. All right, so Empedocles talks about what he thinks these four elements are. And I think what's interesting here is you see for the first time a distinction between... Um, Empedocles says there are four elements that make up the material world, the, the substance of things. But then you have the force that moves those things, love and strife. So here for the first time you have a differentiation between the stuff, the substance, and the animating spirit, the, th the cause of the motion. Before this, the, the motion and the substance were not really seen as different things. And for the first time, Empedocles is saying that it is. There's matter, and matter is moved by forces. And there's something kind of um, like classical physics about that. There is matter, and matter is moved by forces. You know, uh, Isaac Newton would agree wholeheartedly with that. But we're not talking exactly along those lines, but you can see how you get from Empedocles to Newton. You can see that. You can see clearly, you know, what will happen. All right, so now we're going to talk about what these four elements are that make up the substance of things. And Empedocles has a very interesting explanation. He says, the four roots of things are bright Zeus, life-bringing Hera, Hades, and Nestis. So, the, the substance of things are four different gods? Like, that's strange. It's not matter we're talking about, or are we? 
So there's something divine here. We're talking about Zeus, Hera, Hades, Nestes. Nestes is a goddess of the water, Hades of the underworld. You know, Hera and Zeus are the mother and father characters, the, the great mother and father. And so Edinger says there's been all kinds of commentators that talk about Empedocles, and this is what they say. They say what Empedocles means is that, they, that these different elements are related to these deities. So Zeus is equivalent to fire, Hera to earth, Hades to air, Nestes to water. And so you can see these philosophical concepts are still mixed with their personified mythological origins. Now, these are commentators saying this. This is kind of reading into it, but you do see later philosophers who run with this idea that earth, water, fire, ether, that these are, these are the, the elements, the, the basic elements that everything is made of. Eventually, that idea becomes... You know, the modern idea of the periodic table of elements. Um, this is the original kind of version of it. Here's what I want to point out. Empedocles deliberately and necessarily connects the substance that things are made from with divine gods. The substance are divine. And that's what we, that is a huge distinction between how we think today you think, do you think boron or oxygen or helium or gold or any of these elements is divine? Well, Empedocles did. Empedocles didn't see a distinction between earth, fire, air, water, and the gods, Zeus, Hera, Hades, Nestes. You see what I mean? So the substance of things was a part and parcel to the substance of, of gods. To, uh, to, uh, they were divine. And Edinger says, Empedocles' work is the first in which there are four archae. Previously, there was a single one. And then he says, we see an archetypal ordering principle of the quaternity functioning as a world creator. So I don't know how much reading into reading Jung into Empedocles this is, but if you remember when we talked about Jung, Jung talked about the idea of the self, the, the, the idea of a God from a psychological perspective. And that that image is repeatedly and reliably uh, depicted as um, a symbol divided into four. This is something he talked about with mandalas. He's like, any, anywhere you see mandalas, it's not just in Buddhism, but anywhere you see mandalas, um, images like this, you have a circle divided into four. You have this idea of a quaternity always present and associated with the idea of God. And Empedocles has this fourfold pattern, this quaternity in his arche, right? The one arche, everyone else said there was one original substance or, or object or, or, you know, entity or force or being or whatever that was the cause of everything. And Empedocles says, no, that, that was four, or, that, or maybe that the oneness is fourfold in some, in some way. That's hard to understand. It's like a, you know, a Trinitarian kind of idea, but, but in, in this case, a fourfold separation, he says, Empedocles considers that there is a cyclic alternation between the process of separatio, brought about by strife and opposition, and those of conjunctio, the connecting of all the elements of the universe, brought about by love. Love brings things together. Strife tears them apart. Um, if you ever, ever 
have experienced either of those emotions, love or strife, you can understand what gets between you and, a, and somebody who used to be a good friend or someone you used to love or whatever. Well, strife will do that. Will will tear people apart. Love will certainly bring people together. And if you can abstract those ideas, those forces, and project them into the cosmos, you can kind of see everything following that pattern, very similar. So the idea of separating from the original unity, separating from God where you started, and this process of conjunctio, of, of coming back together, right? All right, he says, <clears throat> again, the connecting of all the elements brought about by love, he says, a great homogeneous sphere is the nature of the universe in which all things are undifferentiated and bound together by philia, by love. So this singularity, this original unity, has everything that will be, everything that's possible to be, pulled together and held together by, by love. So there's a Big Bang analogy that we've talked about here, obviously. And while we're talking about the Big Bang, this is a singularity. It's a unity, all things together. And it's, it's self-contained, right, by merit of its interaction with itself. So this is, this is in the weeds, but let me try. Imagine all the mass and, and uh, everything in the cosmos being re... re uh, rolled back into this one sing singularity, into this one point, everything pulled together. You can imagine the amount of mass involved and the amount of gravity that must be there. You know, if the sun can hold all of the planets in its orbit, including, you know, gas giants like Jupiter, way off, off in the distance, if gravity of, of the sun has the power to hold all of those things to it, imagine all the sun's in, in all the cosmos, which might be infinite, rolled up into one, and all the planets rolled up into one. Imagine the gravity that thing must have. So from the point of view of physics, it's being held together. The unity, the singularity, is being held together by its own gravity. That's what I mean when I said that it's self-contained by merit of its interaction with itself. Like the one thing that exists, the singularity, is held together by gravity. And it's causing that gravity. Its, its existence is causing the gravity that's holding it together, that's making it, it's keeping it this one thing. And there's a psychological parallel here when we're talking about the idea of God from a psychological perspective. God is the arche. God is all there is, the self, the Jungian self. It's all there is. So its interaction, its action, whatever, whatever that might be, it, it is only with itself because it is all that exists. God is all that exists. So if it's interacting with anything, it's interacting with itself. So if God is a singularity, it's being held together by its self-experience. And there's, again, there's, I know that's difficult to, to understand, it's diff difficult to grapple with, but but try, because that's something worth thinking about for a lifetime. If God is all there is, then everything that exists is God's self-experience. The laws of nature, the existence of matter, you know, everything. Consciousness and everything else. All right, so back to Edinger. He says, 
Gradually, philia, love, streams out of the sphere, and deadly nikos streams in. Right? So you have, you have this thing being held together by love. Gradually, it sort of radiates that love away, and as soon as there's space for something new, nikos streams, streams in to the, fill the void. The, the strife, right? The, the, the force that's going to tear it apart. And I have to say, there's a religious story that um, makes me th- that reminds me of this. Uh, it, it brings this to mind. Um, the Zoroastrian religion we, we've talked about before from ancient Persia, and they believe that um, in the beginning there was uh, Ariman, which is sort of the you might call him the god of evil, and then uh, Ahura Mazda, which is sort of the god of good. Um, I know that's an oversimplification, but this is the idea, the force of good and the force of evil. And when the forces of good begin to create things, the forces of evil immediately stream in to, to try to defile them and spoil them. It's like that's, that's what they do. And this is what happens. As love streams out, deadly strife streams in. Uh, Edinger says, this starts to bring about a separation as the homogenous sphere undergoes fragmentation into different entities, the visible world is created. A cosmogonic process is brought about by Nikos. It is the demiurge, the world creator, analogous to the cosmology of the Gnostics, in which the world is created by the evil one. So, all right, so this, this was fascinating to me. I'm aware that these early Christian groups, these Gnostic groups, believed that the God most people worship, the God that most Christians or Jews worshipped, is some sort of a phony. It's this demiurge. It's, it's this secondary deity that God, the real God, created and gave um, the task of creating the cosmos. And so we turn around and worship this secondary deity, this demiurge, thinking that it's God, when in truth the real God is behind the demiurge. The real God is shrouded in, in mystery, and most people you know, never, never come to realize that they're worshiping essentially the devil. They're worshiping a, uh, a, a, a bad God, or certainly not, not the God, but some sort of secondary God. And so Nikos plays that role. The evil one that's responsible for creation. Very similar to this Gnostic idea of the demiurge, the evil god responsible for creation. And Edgar tells us, this image has no basis in external reality. It is a projected picture of the psychic development of the ego as it emerges from the original state of unconscious wholeness. So this idea of Love streaming out, strife streaming in and breaking this thing up, this unity, breaking it up into different things. This is a this is a way of understanding how the ego emerges from the unconscious, how something new, how you, a standalone living entity, uh, broke off from this unconscious background, this unconscious source from, from which consciousness emerges. And then he turns to the other poem. He turns to catharsis or purifications. And he says, in purifications, souls move in and out of visible earthly existence. And that is an Orphic doctrine. Okay, so now we see again Orphism uh, rearing its head again 
through Empedocles. Empedocles also um, influenced by Orphism. So souls move in and out of this visible earthly existence. What does that mean? That means that there's a place apart from the physical material world where souls can exist, a place where they come from. And what are they doing in this visible earthly existence? They're incarnated. This is an Orphic doctrine. Now, Orphism, again, is, is rumored to have involved psychedelic experience. And if you've had psychedelic experience, you, you understand that an out-of-body experience or a dissolution or a dissociation, rather, uh, sort of a psychic dissociation, these are possible outcomes. You, you have a psychedelic experience. You might have an out-of-body experience. You might have a dissociative experience. And when you do, either of those things gives you reason to believe that your consciousness, that your soul, exists separately from your body. Right? How else could you be floating above your body? How else could you find yourself in another universe, which you would, you would experience if you did dimethyltryptamine as an example? How does that happen? So your soul must, be, must have existence all by itself. Right? And this is how you can get to, to an idea of the soul existing before it comes into the earth, before it's incarnated into a body. Edinger says, the main theme is the fall of souls from an original state of blessedness. They are condemned to a series of earthly existences until such time as they have purified themselves. Empedocles said, quote, there is a decree of the gods that whenever one of the daemons has followed strife, he must wander three, excuse me, thrice 10,000 seasons away from the blessed, being born in all manner of mortal forms, passing from one to another of the painful paths of life. Of these now am I also one, an exile from God and a wanderer. Oh, man. So whenever the daemon, which is the spirit, follows strife rather than love, he's committed some sin. He has to now wander thrice 10,000 seasons away from the blessed, away from the place where the soul originated before it became a body. As soon as it's tainted by strife, now it has to redeem itself through this, through this process of reincarnation being born again and again, taking on different mortal forms, passing through the pains of life until it's purified and can once again rejoin um, you know, its place of origin. And Empedocles is not saying, I'm high and mighty. He says, of these now I also am one. I am an exile from God and a wanderer. I just love that because aren't we all So the soul coming out of the blessed state down to earthly existence corresponds to the birth of the ego out of the unconscious. Right? Where does the ego come from? This unconscious you know, uh, substrate, whatever that means, this numinous spiritual realm of not yet quite existing. But existence can come from it. Right? Ego can come from it. Consciousness can emerge from it. And where is this mysterious, numinous, blessed realm that we're calling unconsciousness where ego can come from? Well, this is the realm of the gods. This is the blessed state from which the souls emerge. And so there's a parallel between the mythological idea or early philosophical idea 
and this sort of a psychological idea. Now he brings up a guy named F.M. Cornford, another scholar, and Cornford says this, The soul is conceived as falling from the region of light down into the roofed-in cave. So Empedocles' image is of the soul falling from heaven. You can, you can see this idea of a fallen angel. I'm, I'm picturing Lucifer falling to earth from my Christian background. And in, the image in my head is like of a comet streaking down to earth. It's like souls are falling down to earth. And when they reach the earth, they're in a roofed-in cave. They're trapped here, you know? And again, this reminds me of the Zoroastrian story. Ahriman, the evil spirit, the devil, floods into all the things that, that the angels and God have created. And when Ahriman does that with the earth, the angels sort of cover the dome of the earth so that Ahriman cannot escape. This is how he's trapped in the earth, according to the Zoroastrians. This is where the battle of good versus evil plays out, where generation after generation of human being um, is born to continue the battle with the devil, and, and we're trapped here together in the earth. And so this idea of these souls falling from heaven and being trapped in this roofed-in cave r- reminds me again of this Zoroastrian story. But the cave also reminds me of Plato. You guys are, I'm sure, familiar with the allegory of the cave from Plato. In this case, the soul is incarnated and finds itself in a world of illusion or appearances. And this is what Plato talks about in the cave. If you were born forever trapped in this cave, um, such that all you can do is stare at the wall in front of you, you have no idea of anybody else around you, um, you have no idea what's outside of the cave, what's behind you, you know, there's a whole world out there, all you have access to is this wall in front of you, and there's these images, uh, cardboard cutouts really, uh, moving along behind you, and there's a fire behind it, casting the shadows on the wall. You're basically watching a movie, shadow puppet movie, and that's all the reality you, you know. It's your only experience you've had. And the point that Plato makes is, if that was the only experience you have, you would believe that those shadows on the wall are reality. And you would be wrong. You would be in a world of illusion, of appearances, and there would be some higher truth that's unavailable to you. That's, that's going to become important in a minute. just want to recap the allegory of the cave. So the soul falls down to the roofed-in cave, um, and while in the, trapped in this roofed-in cave, you, what you're experiencing is something like an illusion. And this is the idea of perception not being quite reality, that everything we experience in our lives is filtered through our senses, right? And we don't really know what it is we're experiencing really. It's like a second-hand experience. Experience is a second-hand phenomenon. We're getting input from our eyes and our fingers and our nose and our ears, but what we're getting inputs of is not clear to us. We're only getting, we're only getting that information passed through our senses. It seems like it's something, but is it really? And we know that what it seems to be isn't what it really is because science has proven that to us unequivocally. If I look at a cat, I see a certain level of reality. There's more to that cat than what I can see or taste or hear or touch. Maybe there's a whole inner life experience of what it's like to be a cat. There's the 
subatomic, atomic, and cellular level of that cat. All of these things I have no knowledge of by just looking at a cat. The point is, perception is illusion because it's incomplete. We don't have any idea how illusory it is. And that's scary and fascinating beyond belief. And that's the human condition. And that's what he's pointing out. And, and, and I'll end with this. He says, at the end of the cycle of births, men rise up as gods, delivered from destiny. Thus the course of the soul begins with separation from God and ends in reunion with him. Okay, right on, Empedocles, right on. The course of the soul begins with separation from God and ends with reunion with him. And so this is the idea of a religious goal, the practice uh, of religion, is to achieve something like this, like a, like a, a union with God. Um, to become one with God, a, a theosis or a, apotheosis, all these, all these sorts of ideas. And that brings me now to Socrates and Plato. All right, so now we're not talking about pre-Socratics anymore, are we? But um, there's a couple more I want to talk about. Now we're talking about Socrates, where modern philosophy begins. Socrates lived about 470 to 399 BC, and Plato from 427 to 347. But it's impossible to know which writings derive from Socrates and which from Plato. So why is that? If, you, if you've read it, you know Plato writes from the perspective of Socrates. Socrates, as far as we know, didn't write anything. And Plato speaks from the mouthpiece of Socrates. So it's hard to tell. Are these Plato's stories? Are they Socrates' stories? It's impossible to differentiate. So we're going to talk about these two philosophers together. And Edinger says this. He says, from Plato, we must acknowledge two central terms. Idios, from the Greek, to see or to know which is translated as idea or form or original pattern. Idios is an idea, a form, an essence, something like that. He says it is a precursor of the concept of the archetype. Now he's going to quote Zellers again. He says, Zellers says, quote, For Plato, the nature of things is the only true reality to be distinguished from their sensual phenomena. Pump the brakes for a second. This is exactly what I was trying to say a minute ago. Plato says that the, the nature of things, the essence of, of things, is the only true reality. The idea of things is the only true reality, which is to be distinguished from their sensual phenomenon. The perception of something isn't the prime reality. It's something more like an illusion. The true reality is something else, something maybe unknowable, Something like an idea. So somebody might ask you a question, what is a dog? Pretty simple question. Most people have lots of experience of dogs. We can tell you lots about dogs. If somebody asks you what is a dog, you think you can answer that question. Um, but the truth is, Socrates and Plato make it obvious. It's very much more difficult than you might think. Because to say what you think a dog is is going to leave out is certainly going to leave out um, qualities 
that some dogs have that most dogs don't. It's, it's very difficult to figure out where the categories belong, where the boundaries of those categories belong. Then, then you might say, but there is something that all the dogs have in common, right? They're all dogs. You might have a big old St. Bernard. You might have a tiny little Chihuahua or something and everything in between. They're all dogs, even though it's hard to imagine that a St. Bernard and Chihuahua are, are, have anything in common. If you saw those two creatures in the wild, you wouldn't think they were the same species at all. <clears throat> but there is something that, that unites them, and this is the idea of dog. This is the form of dog. This is the perfect essence of dog from which all individual dogs are models of. Every model is imperfect. Every model is a little different. But the model itself, the idea to Plato, that is the real thing. What reality is, is something like that. When we look around at perception and see examples, imperfect examples of these ideas, forms, or models, he's saying, no, 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 this is an illusion. So it flips everything on its head. Our day-to-day experience is, is swimming through an illusion. And yet that illusion is filled with references to the real reality, to the ideas of things. And so things become embodiments of these ideas. And we start to see this something like incarnation, this idea of incarnation, an idea being incarnated into matter. It's amazing. All right, he says, the ideas are for him not mere things of thought, but realities. This is exactly how Carl Jung talked about the archetypes. They're real living things. He says, the ideas form a world, the world of noose, the world of mind, which exists of itself, is eternal, and can only be comprehended by thought. The soul in its pre-existence has provided them. Perceptible things are a mere shadowy image of the world of ideas, a view which finds expression in the famous simile of the cave from the Republic. All right, so the ideas form a world of noose. So this is what, what Jung calls the archetypal psyche or the self. The world of ideas, the world of mind. This is, this is it's difficult to talk about as a place because of the nature, but imagine it as a place. The world of ideas. Remember, to Plato, ideas are the real thing. And all of the um, all of the examples, all of the imperfect, um, a, you know, actualized versions of those ideas are illusion. So imagine we could step out of this world of illusion and exist in that world of perfect forms. I mean, if we could, it would be like the the realm of the gods. Now, is that distinct from the world of perception? Hard to say. Is it a parallel reality? Is it something like heaven floating above it? Or is it identical to the world of perception? I'll let, you, I'll let you wonder about that. The ideas form a world of noose, which exists of itself, is eternal, and can only be comprehended by thought. So, again, ideas, we're talking about a world of ideas. So clearly, yes, there's a connection be- between those ideas and thought. And so the connection between the mortal realm and the realm of the gods is through noose. It's through mind. 
It's the thing that we have in common. Remember when we, where we started, Zeus and man share that quality of, of mind. And so that's what connects the, the material world of, uh, with the world of the gods. That's what connects us to God. The ideas that we're capable of, of housing in our own mind. And those are divine, holy, those ideas. Those ideas are responsible for creation, those ideas. He says the soul in its pre-existence has provided them. So the ideas are a part of our soul. Like when our soul is embodied and we become a human being, we bring with us the ideas because, we're, because they're part of our soul in some way. It's almost like the soul itself is an idea. The soul is the idea or the form of man. Man is that imperfect version, that imperfect reality that's a mirror of the perfect soul. And that soul is indistinguishable from God. That's the divine thing. And perceptible things are mere shadowy images of that world of ideas. And Edinger goes on, he says, the notion of platonic ideas grew out of the mind's power to formulate general categories. For the Greeks, when a generalization was discovered... It carried the same numinosity as the discovery of numbers. So numinosity is this feeling of this feeling of a realization of something supernatural, something unexplainable, a mystery. Something numinous is something that grips you and that you don't understand. It's something that is associated with spiritual experience, with religious experience. And what he's saying is that these platonic ideas, they're generalizations. If we go back to the idea of a dog, we can say that there is an idea of a dog to which all of the various imperfect actual dogs kind of reflect. So the idea of a dog is the generalization. It's It's the realization that there is something common that ties together a St. Bernard and a Chihuahua. And when you realize that, it's like... Eureka! It's like a numinous awe experience. It's a it's a experience of gaining wisdom, and it's not obvious. It's something numinous. It's something that that points you to this realm of ideas, right? That points you away from the illusion to some truth, and that that is a religious experience. And he says it's the same numinosity as the discovery of numbers. So we talked about that with Pythagoras. He says numbers Plato used to describe the nature of the idea. Numbers are ide. He says it is a big step from dealing with, say, individual dogs to the realization of dog nature in general. An even bigger step to move from an individual experience of honest, fair treatment to the formulation of generalities of the good itself. right? So it's like I can have a bunch of interactions with people and a, bu- and a bunch of them to me seem fair and honest. And after enough of those examples, I start realizing there's a thread that connects fair and honest treatment. And it points to a truth. A, a separate from those individual experiences, it points to a truth of the good. right? If there's examples of being good, there must be this form of goodness up there. This It points to the real reality, you know? 
All right, so numbers, let's go back to numbers for a second. Numbers are an idea. Numbers are ide, is what he says. Numbers are an idea, and they're a numinous idea. Numbers exist as ideas detached from objects, the same as they are attached to them. So if you say that you have four coconuts and you put four coconuts down on the ground, you, you understand four is the quantity of coconuts. But you take away the coconuts and you ask, what is four? Now that the fact that four is not attached to the coconuts anymore doesn't mean that the number four as an idea ceases to exist. You still hold that idea in your mind. So the idea of four, of a number in this case, points to some higher truth. Numbers are an idea. They can be attached to objects like real things, but they can be detached from them and be mental things, spiritual things. And all ideas or essences or forms are like this, leading to the notion of a world of ideas, which is a familiar notion to religious people, ancient religious people, who believe in the world of the gods. The world of ideas, the world of the gods, right? Then he says, in reading the Phaedo, one cannot avoid being impressed with Plato's idea of the immortality of the soul. Quote, as the soul is immortal, there is no release from evil except the attainment of the highest virtue and wisdom. For after death, the genius of each individual, and I'll stop here, genius is like a spirit guide in this case, the spirit guide of each individual leads him to a place in which the dead are gathered. After judgment has been given and they have received their due, another guide brings them back again. Those who have been preeminent for holiness are released from this earthly prison and go to the pure home which is above and live without the body. So this is the quote from the Phaedo. The soul is immortal, and so there is no release from evil except for attainment of the highest virtue. When you die, a spirit guide will take you to the realm of the dead. You're going to be judged and punished and purified, and then you're brought back to the realm of the living again. Your soul gets recycled. And only those preeminent in holiness are released from this cycle of reincarnation. The ones that are purified perfectly and can return to their origin, can return to God. And you have very Hindu and Buddhist notions here. Reincarnation is present, and the idea of, a, of an end to it, whether it be nirvana or moksha or whatever it is, you see that here present in the ancient Greek idea. And Edinger says, this passage reflects the Orphic doctrine on Plato and is the source of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory and hell. Isn't that interesting? Purgatory and hell are Orphic doctrines. I challenge you to find, to find either of those concepts, purgatory and hell, as we understand them as Christians. Find them in the Old Testament. Find a single Jew that believes that, that that's part of the theology. There is no hell there's a land of the dead. There's Sheol, the land of the dead. There is no hell in Judaism. So where did this idea come from? Certainly purgatory, even a stranger idea. Where did that come from? The Orphic tradition. Isn't that amazing? And that brings us to Aristotle. Aristotle lived 384 to 322 B.C., and in Aristotle, we see the full emergence of the conscious, rational ego. Scientific investigation substantially begins with him. Aristotle asks the question, what is the psyche? 
Is there a collective or universal psyche as well as an individual one? What is the relation between soul and body? Can the psyche exist without a body? Is the psyche the source of of movement? Or is the psyche moved by some prior agent, namely God? In modern terms, is the psyche a substance or is it an, an epiphenomenon? Now, if you're wondering what that means, is psyche a substance or an epiphenomenon? Um, Jung illustrated what it means to think of the psyche as an epiphenomenon, saying it is as though the brain were a bowl of hot spaghetti, and the psyche is the steam coming off of it. So this is the first grappling scientifically with what the soul is, what the psyche is. And Aristotle really is the first empiricist, the first scientist. And so he's asking all these important questions about what the soul is and how it relates to the body. And he's asking them in a scientific way. So is the soul something real or is it just a side effect? Is it just an unintended consequence of something else? Is it an accident of nature, really? That's what it means to be an epiphenomenon. And this is an argument going on today, by the way. All the the neuroscientists and the philosophers of mind, they argue about this all the time. Is consciousness an epiphenomenon? The brain's activity doing what it does, and as a weird consequence side effect, we have this feeling of introspection and self-consciousness. Is that what's going on? Or is consciousness itself fundamental and just finding expression in the body? All right, he goes on. He says, um, Aristotle describes the psyche, and this is what he says. The individual being is an ensouled body composed of a material and a formal principle. So matter, hyle, and a form, idios. So an ensouled body composed of matter and soul. Aristotle was the first to establish the idea of matter as distinguished from form. So matter and form. And this is where form starts to sound like soul or animating spirit, something like that, which, which is directly from, from his master, Plato. So form was an incorporeal entity of a spirit-like nature, thought to imprint itself on matter and create a specific object. Matter without form is what Aristotle thought of as first matter, undefined and unlimited, the common substrate of everything, without any particular qualities at all. So, so matter without form, to Aristotle, is something like the arche. Now, matter without form doesn't ex- exist in reality, right? All matter has form. So what is matter without form? He says it's unlimited, undefined, common substrate of everything. It's like a stem cell. It can become any cell, right? It's the common origin of everything. So you have something like this. You have this substance without qualities, or maybe with all the qualities all at once. And what you need is a form to stamp on it, like a cookie cutter, right? You put that form on it, and you you make it something specific with specific qualities, You limit the unlimited with form. And that form is something like the animating spirit that brings to life the matter or brings to some actualized reality that undifferentiated stuff 
matter without form. He says, psychologically, form and matter relate to archetype and ego. Form is the archetypal, you know, pre-material, numinous element. Matter relates more to ego, to the, to the actualized, living, uh, embodied um, consciousness. The idea that matter is the source of individuation is originally Aristotelian. Jung applied that idea to ego existence, that which gives material reality to archetypal form. Ego is that which gives material reality to an archetypal form. So you and I, we're the thing we're calling ego. We give reality to an archetypal form. We are the embodiment of a spirit. We have made the numinous spiritual thing, the form, real. We've, we've, we've incarnated it. We've manifested it in matter. We've brought it to life. We've brought it into a different realm of being. So you have this incarnation idea. Form coming into matter, filling it with life and, and, and defining it. He says, the same duality of form and matter is found in their Aristotelian terms, the mover and the moved. So this is him talking about God and, and God's creation, the mover and the moved. He says, the moved corresponds to matter. As Aristotle understood it, matter is inert in itself, requiring some dynamic form outside itself to move it. Right? Matter isn't alive on its own. It can't move on its own. It needs to be moved. It needs to be pushed by something. He says form supplies that dynamic. Form is the animating spirit, the thing that goes in and moves it. He says where form and matter come into contact... Motion always arises. Psychologically, the moved corresponds to the ego, the unmoved to the self. So isn't that weird? Form is the spirit. Form goes into matter like a spirit possessing a body. Isn't that amazing? And where form and matter come into contact, motion always arises. What is motion? Animation. Life. Right? So Aristotle makes this interesting, this interesting contribution of spirit and matter being separate things. He doesn't separate them as much as Descartes will, as much as you know um, other philosophers um, and scientists will do uh, after him. But he kicks it off. He kicks off what's going to become materialism, modern materialism. He doesn't dismiss the idea of form or spirit he's holding on to that again that's an inheritance from from plato and i appreciate that about about aristotle but form and matter is is the important part the formless matter this is for aristotle the arche it's the origin of all real material um manifest uh reality and that brings me to the last philosopher we're going to talk about today Zeno of Citium. Edinger says, Zeno, not to be confused with Zeno of Alea, is the father of the school of Stoicism. So this is 340 B.C. to 265 B.C. 
he fathered a quite profound philosophical religion, which later included Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius. According to the Stoics, the basic principle of the universe was the Logos. This refers to the divine word that is cast like a seed into matter. All right, so Logos is where we begin to see a lot more direct relationship with Christianity because Christianity, um, in their interaction with the Hellenized world, um, really grabs a hold of this idea of Logos and kind of appropriates it for their own use. Um, but it really begins back here. The Logos is the divine word that is cast like a seed into matter. The divine word, so you have this divine thing that's put into matter, just like a soul possessing a body or becoming embodied. So here again, you have this image of an incarnation. Just like Plato talks about form possessing matter, or Aristotle talks about form possessing matter, or spirit possessing uh, being embodied. Here you have the exact idea, logos, being cast into matter. All right, so he brings up a later philosopher here, Diogenes Laertes, and he describes Stoicism like this. Quote, God is one and the same with reason, fate, and Zeus. In the beginning, he was by himself. He transformed the whole of substance, adapting matter to himself. Buddy, God is the one and the same with reason, fate, and Zeus. So I don't know what you might think that means. I'm going to save my explanation for the conclusion, but God is something like reason, fate, and Zeus rolled into one. In the beginning, he was there by himself. It was the unity, the one self-contained thing, the singularity. And he transforms himself, adapting matter to himself. Nettinger says, the world, in their view, is ordered by reason, by, by nous. And nous is a synonym for logos. So when we're talking about mind or logos, those ideas are so close, closely related, it's difficult to really distinguish them. And he says, the whole world is a living being endowed with soul and reason. So this is kind of a pantheism or a panentheism. The whole cosmos is an incarnation, is a living being endowed with soul. It's not just you as a human being, it's everything, the whole kit and caboodle. He says, this profound image appears in various traditional worldviews, a world soul that surrounds and penetrates the material world. It sends off sparks of itself, which generate replicas of the world soul in individual human beings. The individual soul is of the same substance as the world soul. So now you have an idea that's distinctly Hindu. You have this idea from the Upanishads, from the Vedanta school, that they say this Atman is Brahman. This soul dwelling within me is the same soul that, that, that possesses the cosmos, that, that we call God. The individual soul and God are the same thing. And the image he, he's talking about here is a world soul, a cosmic soul, and it, and it sends off little sparks of itself. You know, it's, it's being fragmented, separated, and all those little pieces that fling off of it are individual human souls, you know, individual little mini-gods. 
And that brings me to my conclusion. Well, we're still seeking the RK now, aren't we? And Exagoras saw mind, or noose, as the RK. He imagined mind to be the force of action in the world. It's animating spirit. Like thoughts which pop in and out of consciousness against one's will. Thoughts which seem to interact with other thoughts and transform into something new. Where do they come from? Where do they go? And how do they do what they do? We can't say. But we can at least understand how the contents of mind seem to move and act dissociated from objects that can be moved or acted upon. It is as though mind is the non-material precursor to the material cosmos. What moves in mind comes to move also in matter. Empedocles begins to build just such a bridge. He sees the cosmos as eternal and uncreated and extends this property to soul. In fact, he doesn't see cosmos and soul as distinct things at all. So, of course both are eternal. There is a cycle of transformation which continually moves soul into matter and matter back into soul. And here we encounter the idea of incarnation or embodiment for the first time. How would you describe soul moving into matter? Can you think of a better word than incarnation? Yeah, me either. Next, Plato steps in to address the question, but what is the soul psyche that it should be embodied at all? Plato tells us the soul is form or idea, and it is this which is the arche. Ideas do not exist merely as embodied thoughts, but pre-exist also in noose, completely detached from any material thing. They are eternal things, potential things, things which might be if only they can be incarnated. The essences of all things find their origin there. These are the forms, the ideas, the thoughts in the mind of God. They are the numinous thing that can enter the cosmos, the spirit that can be manifest. But how? Just how does incarnation occur? Plato's great student Aristotle answers this question by positing his own prima materia. He sees matter as the prime reality, as modern materialists do today. But his idea of matter is as numinous and strange as Plato's forms. Aristotle imagined matter without form as the arche. Matter is the real, but not yet committed to or limited by any particular form. It reminds me of the Taoist idea of the uncarved block or the T-1000 liquid metal from Terminator 2 can become anything. It is, since it is matter, yet it can become anything. So what is it that makes matter without form a particular something? Well, form, of course. Aristotle sees matter as potentiality, which is possessed by form. Again, we encounter the incarnation motif. 
And then we come to Zeno, who throws a wrench in all this good sense. Or does he? Zeno sees Logos as the Arche and speaks of it just as Anaxagoras spoke of Nous. So in a way, we come full circle. But why? Why return to the idea of Nous? Why reject the four elements and the two forces of Empedocles? In order to reclaim the oneness, that's why. To recover the unity of being. To make the Arche one again. Zeno describes the Logos as reason, fate, and Zeus all rolled into one. So the oneness stands out clearly, but what is he trying to say here? He's saying that the Arche is one, and that oneness is simultaneously reason, the ordering principle in the world, the form of Plato, the animating spirit, fate, which is action in the world, the revolution described by Anaxagoras, what must be, and Zeus, the king of the gods and the highest principle. All of this finds reality in mind as well as matter, which brings Zeno to say, quote, the whole world is a living being endowed with soul. Yes, that's it. The entire cosmos is an incarnation. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.